Good evening. We're going to get rolling. This is our first core class of 2019. I can't think of a better place to be on a Friday night than here hanging out with you talking about prayer. So we're going to talk about prayer for three hours. One would think in three hours we would cover everything there is to know about prayer. But I just want to let you know ahead of time that we're not going to get to everything. Uh, I was just thinking off the top of my head, we're not going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in prayer. We're not going to talk about prayer in the Old Testament. We're not going to, about, we're not going to talk about prayer throughout church history. There's just lots of things we're not going to get to. If you would like to stay for an extra three hours, we can maybe do that afterwards. But during our three hours, we're just not going to get to those things. I also just want to say out loud, sometimes when you're in the audience looking at someone on stage, you might assume that the person on stage is doing everything that he's talking about. I want you to know that I am not. I am on the journey with you. The Bible says, pray without ceasing. I'm not there yet. I'm going to guess most of you are not there yet. I have not prayed yet and watched a mountain actually move anywhere. Okay? So, like, I'm on the journey with you. So, I look forward to talking about this. Even as I've studied it, it's pushed me. It's caused me to kind of question where I'm at in my prayer life. And it's allowed me to get into a place where I get more excited about the idea of praying more. So, that's my hope and that's my prayer for you is that we journey together and talk about the Lord. Let's talk about expectations for tonight and kind of how it's going to work. Uh, so the spots in your book, you're, no, you're going to notice it's a pretty thick book that I gave you. You're going to have some homework. So there'll be sections that I'm going to go through with you and sections where I just say, that's for you on your own. Just label that homework whenever we get there. So I'd like you to cover most of what's in there. We'll do some of it together and some of it you'll be doing on your own. Tonight we're going to go big in terms of concepts and perspectives then we're going to nail down some details about prayer. And then we're going to have an intermission. Then we're going to go big again. And then we're going to get more detailed about some specific things about prayer. So if you're sitting there saying, why is he talking about such big things? Don't worry about it. We're going to get into some of the, the details and work through specific verses and passages. But I just think we need to have a big, broad perspective of who our God is, the work of the gospel in our life, to know how to really live out a life of prayer that'll stick and that'll grow and that it will be rooted in the right things. Uh, during our time together, we'll take moments for pause and moments for prayer. We'll work through a couple of things, and at times we'll just stop. And I will say, you've got three or four minutes to talk to the Lord about what we just talked about. Okay? If we're going to talk about prayer for three hours, we should spend some of our time together actually praying. So we're going to be doing that. There'll be a couple of videos tonight. Uh, I think there's some people out there who have said things so much better than I could ever say it, and I want you to take advantage of that. Since we have YouTube, we're going to take advantage of YouTube. Uh, we're going to do a little whiteboard work. If you know me, this is like my security blanket. So I just, if it's here on the stage, I just feel better. So it's with me on, it, I have my own stand just for the markers. Okay, so we're ready to go. I've got like three or four colors. Like we're going we're gonna to hit it tonight. Uh, so we're going to do some whiteboarding. Uh, as we get started, I want to recommend a couple books. The first one is one by Tim Keller. Uh, that one's called The Songs of Jesus. The one I would like to suggest is called Prayer. Um, so that's a good book, too. Uh, in your bibliography, there's a book by Tim Keller called Prayer, and that's the one I would encourage you to get. Okay, That's a great book, but that's not the one we're talking about tonight. Uh, the second one is a book by Paul Miller, and it's going to pop up on the screen. It's called A Praying Life. Between these two books, it'll cover everything that we did not get a chance to cover tonight. If, if I had asked you to read two books before you showed up tonight, those would have been the two books I would have encouraged you to read. 
I've had multiple people ask me about 2019. What topics are we going to cover in core classes? What is the schedule going to look like? I want to let you know right now that the schedule's planned. If you go to the back of your book, you're going to see the entire 2019 schedule, topics and dates. Uh, we'll put that up on the screen. And <clears throat> we're going to have, well, I can't read that from here, but uh, I'm sure you can read it in your seat. Uh, we're going to have a couple more intensives where we do our three-hour Friday nights. We're going to have two more of those this year, one in April and then one in the fall. And then we're going to do several classes on Thursdays. We tend to do Thursdays. Uh, this year, we're going to do 6.15 a.m., 12 around the lunch hour, and then 6.15 p.m. We were doing a 9 a.m. We weren't having many people come. If you really could only come at 9 a.m., you come talk to me, and we'll figure out if we can make it happen. But right now, we're thinking about doing it in those three time slots throughout the year. We're basically this year working through all of the major Bible doctrines that there are. We're basically doing a systematic theology class. Oh, the Grams made it. Hey, Grams. <laughs> Glad you came. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Uh, <laughs> We're going to be doing one book for the whole year. The book is 50 Core Truths by a guy named Greg Allison. Uh, Matt, friend, and I both got to work alongside Greg Allison in Louisville. Wonderful guy. He's on the cutting edge theologically. He's writing books now that are being read throughout the entire world. And this is a new one that he just wrote in 2018. He puts each doctrine into about six or seven pages. Okay, so every single chapter is very doable. One of our men's Bible studies right now are working through it, and they're loving it. So we together are going to be working through the core classes and working through that book together over the course of 2019. I really believe it's going to be an amazing year. I mean, there's some great stuff that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about some big, huge stuff and some little detail peripheral doctrine stuff. So we're going to hit both over the course of 2019. So as we start our night, it feels like we should pray, doesn't it? Let's do that. Let's talk to the Lord about our night. Father, I thank you for each and every person here. Lord, you know more than anyone that me standing up here uh, is not because I'm ahead of anyone here. Uh, we are on the journey together, pursuing your face, pursuing your mission, uh, desiring for you to change and transform our hearts to fall more in love with you. And that's not going to happen unless you move. And God, one of the ways that you've called us to be a part of your movement is to pray, to pray forward your kingdom, to pray forward the work and power of your hand in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So God, move us to be people of prayer. Uh, may the result of this night be that we are a church that loves you more, serves you more, and does it on our knees. I can't make that happen. No single person in here can make that happen. Only you can make that happen. So we ask that you would move in a mighty way. Speak through the teacher, open hearts of those who are here, and allow your words to be spoken with clarity. In Christ's name, amen. So when I'm thinking about prayer or studying prayer, what pops in my head is studying prayer is a little bit like studying or climbing a mountain, okay? There's two aspects to a mountain. One, you have to stand at a distance and kind of observe it. You have to get a feel of what you're about to do. You have to understand the climate. You want to understand the terrain. Uh, you almost want to come at it from a philosophical point of view. Can I really do this? What's the point of going on to this journey? Should I start this journey? Uh, so philosophically, this is where we talk about perspectives on prayer and the whys behind why we pray. But we also, if we're true climbers, if we're people who really want to pray, we're not going to be content just standing back staring at the mountain. We're going to want to walk up. We're going to grab those rocks, pick up a pickaxe, 
put on our gloves and our shoes. We're going we're to want to climb that thing. It won't be enough for us just to look at it from a distance. We want to feel the wind on our face, the rocks in our hands. We want to see what it looks like when you get on top of the mountain. What does that view look like? So tonight we're going to be doing both. There'll be times when we stand back and kind of look at prayer from a distance, philosophically. Why should we even do this? Why should we commit ourselves to praying more? And then sometimes we're going to get up close and detailed, where you see the dirt between the rocks and the hard parts, and we have to figure out how we're going to get from one step to the next step to the next step. So we're going to be doing both. This is not three hours about how can I get what I want from God. Okay, so if you were hoping for that, that's not really what we're going to do tonight. It's not three hours about how can I get what I want from God. Prayer, I believe, and the Bible says, is bigger than that. How can I participate with God in the growth and expansion of his kingdom in me and in his world? The answer is prayer. How can I become more intimate with the Father who loves me so much? The answer is prayer. How do I fight for the souls of those that I love? And those who I call friends, those who I call neighbors, those who I call coworkers, the answer is prayer. So in God's sovereignty, in God's ability to control and know all things, he uses prayer to build our faith, to change hearts, to reach cities, and to transform his world. The question is, are we going to participate? So let's look at the mountain from a distance. If you go to your first page at the top, it says, Framing Our Conversation About Prayer. Framing Our Conversation About Prayer. I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ when I was in college. Now I think it's just called Crew. A man named Bill Bright was alive at the time, and he led that organization. And when people asked him to define prayer, he just would always define it the same way. It's, it's talking to God, okay? Talking to God but I still have like another two hours and 45 minutes to fill, so I need to go more in depth than that. But at the kernel of it, at the core of it, talking to God is right. But when I think about the fact that I get to talk to God, what does that mean? Whose presence am I walking into? What is the significance of a finite little person like me walking into the throne room of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise God like him? So that sentence, though it's simple, is also crazy profound. And I believe that thought of who I'm addressing and who I'm talking to begins to frame my understanding of my prayer life. So let's go through these five points together. The first point says this. God is relational and conversational. He is actively revealing himself to his creation. God is relational and he's conversational. God is actively revealing himself to his creation. God is the one starting the conversation. All right, let's whiteboard. So when we talk about the Lord, oftentimes throughout Scripture we see it in the singular, the Lord, or we see Jesus, or we say the Father. But for all of eternity, before God said, in the beginning and created all things, before he said that, God has always existed in a trinity. He's a triune God. So here's my attempt at drawing it. Okay. Not impressive, but I don't know how else to do it. Okay. There's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. God has lived in community. He's lived in relationship with himself forever. 
Before there was time, before there was space, before there was matter, there was God. And he lived in perfect community, perfect unity with himself forever. He lived with perfect conversation forever. For some reason, because we can't really get there mentally, I think we view the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit just kind of staring at each other awkwardly for all of eternity. You want to say anything? Nope. Do you want to say anything? I got nothing to say. So, like, I think we view God like that. They love one another perfectly, fully, completely, in every way possible. They love being with one another. They enjoy one another's presence, okay? So, it's not them awkwardly staring at each other. It's them loving one another, communicating with one another, having a true relationship, experiencing true community for all of eternity, okay? So God's good at it. He knows how to have a conversation. He longs for you and I to communicate with him because he's a God who's always communicated forever. He's always lived in community. He's relational by nature. So he is always actively revealing himself to us. Now, God is a God of infinite beauty, infinite with your hands, how big is infinite, right? Like, you can't do it. It's forever. It's unending. His beauty is unending. It's deeper than the deepest ocean. It's higher and farther away than the farthest galaxy. His beauty is infinite. So how does an infinitely beautiful God reveal his beauty to a finite creature like you and me? Well, most likely, you and I will never fully grasp how amazing he truly is. But over time, piece by piece, he's revealing himself to us to the point that we can just get just enough in to grow a little bit more in our knowledge of our infinite God. So over time, forever, we're going to be growing in our understanding of the beauty of God. So God is always revealing more and more and more of himself to us over time. And God does this through his word, he does it through his son, Jesus, and he does it through his creation. There is a constant stream of communication going into your life at all times. Sometimes I'll hear people say, and if, and if you say this, I'm not trying to pick on you, why is God so silent? You have 66 books in the Bible where he's speaking to you. He's proclaiming who he is to you. If you're not spending time in God's word, he may feel silent. But those are his words being spoken to his people. He's starting a conversation each and every day with you if you would open up his word. If you spend time thinking about who Jesus is and all that he did for you on the cross, that's him revealing himself to you, starting a conversation where we have an appropriate response like, I cannot believe how amazing you are. How is it possible that you love me this much? He is always starting the conversation. And if you miss his son, if you miss his word, it says that the heavens are declaring, they're proclaiming. Speech pours forth night and day where creation itself is saying, look to the God who created me. He's amazing. Praise is always coming forth. God is always starting the conversation with us. So in prayer, if you don't know where to start, maybe the answer isn't by you talking Maybe it's by you listening, opening his word, looking at Jesus, looking to the cross, taking a walk in nature. God is always pouring forth speech. Now, 
Number two, I said a lot more there than I planned on, so we're going to have to go a little faster tonight than that. Uh, God transcends his creation. God transcends his creation. Why pick a fancy word? It's important for us to realize, and I mentioned this a moment ago, when God created, he created everything. Before he said, before in the beginning, there was just God in his eternal state forever. Isaiah says, from his eternal place, and it describes that he creates. So God creates time. God creates matter. God creates space. None of those existed before God spoke them into being. Okay, so we've got time, we've got matter, and we've got space. And when I say God transcends it, it means that he's over it. He's above it. He lives outside of it. So if you're at home and you create a cardboard box, it would be weird for you then to get inside that cardboard box and say, I can't get out. I'm stuck in this cardboard box. Okay, you can live outside of the cardboard box. Now, you also can stick your hands inside of it, and you can do stuff within it, but you're not bound by that cardboard box. God is not bound or controlled by time, matter, and space. He resides over it. So, one illustration that I've heard that I think is decent, is lacking, but every illustration is lacking, we're talking about an infinite God, is that history, from the beginning of history to the end of history, it's almost like God is standing on the top of a tower, and he's looking down on all of history, and he can see the beginning as much as he can see the end, as much as he can see every point in between. So God knows all of it. So why does that matter with your prayer life? You and I are going to pray for things that are just beyond our understanding. We're going to experience things that we can't put the pieces together, whether it's suffering, trials, broken relationships, whatever it may be, there are things that are going to go beyond us. But when we're talking to a God and we know that it's not beyond Him, it gives you a little peace. It helps you pray in a certain way, with a certain perspective. Now, God sees the whole parade, but we also learn from Matthew chapter 11, verses 21 through 23, that Jesus says, if this city would have repented, this would have happened. Okay? There's places in Scripture where we're told that He doesn't only know what will happen, what has happened and what is happening, he also knows all the would-haves and could-haves. He knows what would have happened if this would have gone this way. He knows what could happen if it goes this way. So as he's looking down on the parade, he can see all the side streets. And if somebody wandered off the parade and went the wrong direction, he knows what's happening and where that would end up. He can see all of it. What has happened, what is happening, what will happen, and all the could-haves and would-haves in between. We don't see any of that. We don't see it. We barely even understand the moment that we're living in, right? Like, we have limited knowledge of even what's going on around me right now. I don't even know what's in your mind. I don't know what, I mean, you don't know what I'm thinking. I hope I'm dressed, like, I just, I hope I'm dressed okay. Like, there's just all these things that we don't even know when it comes to awareness about our present moment. But God sees all of it all the time in fullness, as well as the would-haves and could-haves. That affects the way we talk to Him. That affects our perspective of Him. So, he sees all the streets, but we also need to understand this. He's also fully participating in the parade. The next point, point three, is he chooses to dwell and live inside of space, time, and matter with us. So by nature, by nature, he lives outside of those things. 
by choice he chooses to live in those things he doesn't have to god isn't required to do that he's not required to create all things then he's responsible to his creation to act in a particular way god chooses because he is good because he loves because he's abounding in grace he chooses to live within time space and matter So he's above all of it. He sees it all from the loftiest perspective you can see it, what's going to happen and what could happen. But he's also with you every moment of every day, step by step with you, always, always. Now, we talk about the fact that God is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere. God is, if you've never heard that word before, not important. It just means omni, every, present, where, everywhere. God's presence, we're just going to go here for a moment, go with me for a second. God's presence fills time. God's presence fills matter. He's not more present in this room than he is in a galaxy far, far away. His presence is equal in both places. God isn't, God isn't more present in this moment than he is in the moment before or the moment after. God's not more present in 2019 than he is in year two or you're 20,000. God's presence fills time as well. That's why in the book of Revelation, he can show John what's actually happening because he's there and he knows what's happening. Okay, he's everywhere, always present, and he fills all space. I just want you to get a glimpse of who you're talking to. And that God who fills all of it, he's fully aware of your circumstances. He's fully aware of your needs and your hurts and your pains, even more than you are. Sometimes we pray that God would change our circumstances when God knows that those are exactly the circumstances that you need to grow you in the way you need to grow to be more like him. Sometimes we have to trust in his perspective because it's infinite rather than our perspective, which is finite and small and lacking Okay? So having that perspective of how great and awesome our God is, the one who lives outside of his creation but chooses to dwell completely throughout his creation, that puts us in a perspective, puts us in a position to have a perspective to really trust him with our prayers, to know that he hears and he understands. Point four. I think this is really important. I don't think we think about point four. God created out of abundance. So often, I think we think of God as being this old man sitting on a lazy boy through all of eternity, just kind of stroking his beard, twiddling his thumbs, and then he decides to create out of boredom. He created because he needed something to play with. We just think of God that way. That's not at all what's going on. That's not what the Bible says. He has a perfect relationship with himself, so much so that they don't end up with lack, they end up with abundance. They create the Father, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit create out of abundance, out of a wellspring, out of extra. God creates out of extra, okay? So he didn't create us and then become dependent on us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need any of it. But he created so that he might lavish upon us his love, that he may freely give away his grace, 
So if you know that to be true, it's a lot easier to go to him in prayer. If you know that you're walking into a room where God has a smiling face and open arms, you're more likely to walk into that throne room. If in your mind you view God as frowning and disappointed with you, if you view him as someone who's wagging his finger, you are less likely to enter into that throne room. But when you realize that he created out of abundance because he loves to give away his grace, he loves to give away his love, he loves to pour out mercy on those who need it, how much more quickly will we run into his throne room? God created out of abundance. Okay, fifth point. God created to bring glory to himself. Well, that sounds kind of selfish. When a finite being who isn't of infinite value expects glory, it is selfish, it's sinful, it's wrong, and will be punished for it. But when an infinite God of supreme value, of infinite worth, desires glory, well, he's just following basic logic. Nothing else makes sense. The one of infinite worth deserves to be told, you are worthy. So God has created to glorify himself and to bring glory to himself. How does he do this? I'm going to take my paper with me. It's easier to remember when you're in your office than when you're up in front of people. So there's five areas where ways that we can bring him glory. They all start with R. You're welcome. The first one is by reflecting his glory. By reflecting his glory. The second one is by recognizing his glory. The third one is by receiving from him. The third, fourth is by responding. And the fifth is by reporting. So, how do we bring glory to God? By being created by him in his image, your very nature reflects who he is. And the more that you become like Christ, the more clearly you reflect who he is, and that brings glory to God. You recognize how awesome he is. There should be moments in your life, both in your prayer life and in just your day-to-day life, where you just go, oh, you are that wonderful, where we recognize who he is, and we receive it. If he's created out of abundance, the only one that has lack is his creation. We have lack. So in his abundance, he looks forward to giving you grace, giving you love, giving you mercy. So how do we give him glory? Is by receiving it with thankfulness. I'll take a little more, please. Take seconds on his grace. Take thirds on his mercy. He loves to give it. Responding. So sometimes, after you've received, all you can do is praise. And that is a way to glorify the Lord, by rightly responding to the amazing gifts that you've been given. The last one is reporting. You tell someone else about how awesome he is. You tell someone else about how truly awesome he is. How does it affect my prayer life? Lord, clean me, change me, grow me to be more like you, so that everything that I want and desire and the way I act and my intentions reflect the beauty of who you are. That's one of the ways that we pray if we recognize that that's why we're created. 
Lord, give me a clear understanding of how amazing you are. I want to see you fully. Moses prayed that prayer, okay? In Jeremiah, he prays that prayer. I want to see you. I want to know you. That's how we pray. Receiving. Lord, I want your love. I want your grace more. I want to know more of what it means to live my life in your mercy and in your goodness. Freely receive and respond. Sometimes in the car, flip on some worship and sing as loud as you can where nobody can hear you. That's the only way I'm allowed to sing in my home, is if I'm not in my home, okay, because I'm a terrible singer. But respond, worship. Finally, reporting, tell people about how awesome he is. Pray that God would open hearts and minds and opportunities for you to share and to report his goodness. So recognizing this, believing this, radically changes our prayer life. I stop telling the Lord that my pillow is too hard, and I start telling him that I want to see more of him. I stop telling him that I'm tired of the tire on my car going flat all the time, and I say, Lord, allow me to praise you properly. Okay? I stop complaining that I can't get my fireplace to work, and I start telling my neighbors about how awesome he is and start praying for them. This radically changes the way I think. This is us looking at the mountain from a distance. Okay, let's go to the next page. So that was us getting big. Let's take it down a notch. <clears throat> I'm actually going to read through some of this with you. So some of you enter this study with excitement. Uh, some of you are going to enter this study with dread. There's a good chance that those with dread didn't come tonight. Okay, There's, that's possible. But some of you showed up and you just, you don't know where you're at right now with your prayer life. It kind of scares you to talk about it. I am so glad you're here. Prayer can be the most delightful and uplifting experience of the day. For others, prayer feels like a lonely fight, a struggle to sense God's presence. Here are some of the different struggles that we go through. And if you haven't gone through these, you probably will. So it's okay for us to talk about them so that you can be ready for them. We read that God has promised to answer our prayers, yet often I don't receive what I had requested did God hear me correctly? Does he not want me to be happy? If we think this way over time, we can grow cynical, wondering if he really cares, wondering if he really is paying attention, and our faith starts to turn to doubt. We also can struggle in this way. We are told that prayer is a great time to connect with the Lord and enjoy him, but I often feel like I'm praying to the ceiling. Prayer reminds me of how distant I feel in my relationship with God. In shame, I don't share this experience with my friends who talk about the fondness of prayer. What is wrong with me? Does God even want to spend time with me? There'll be periods of your life where you're going to feel like that. You might feel that way right now. I've gone through those. For others, I've achieved the family and income I've always desired. What need do I have to pray? I've set it upon myself. I've made it my goal to be independent. So why would I express needs that I don't feel like I have? Some people get there. Another one. Every time I try to pray, I get distracted. I can't keep my mind in one place. Somehow I'm trying to pray for a missionary family, but I keep thinking about my grocery list. Perhaps I'm not as spiritual as everyone thinks I am. Last example. God knows what I've done. He knows my thoughts. He knows my fears, my desires, and he's fully aware of all of my past failures. Why would he want to spend time with me? I already have enough guilt in my life. 
Why talk to a God who knows all my problems and all my failures? And from any one of these situations, unintentionally, we slowly slide into doubting. We slowly slide into possibly getting cynical about God. We feel guilty about the struggles we have. We start to feel hopeless. And next thing you know, we just simply stop praying. Where are you tonight? It's hard to talk about the next step if you don't know where you are. Here's a couple examples. Some of you, hopefully, some of you are sailing. You're living the Christian life with the wind at your back. God feels real to you, and you often feel his love. Life is hard, but the winds just keep pushing you forward in your prayer life. Others, you feel like you're rowing. Prayer in the Christian life feels more like a duty than delight. God's presence feels faint, but you diligently press on, wondering why the feelings, wondering why things feel off and why things feel wrong. Pleasure may be sought in things outside of Christ in your Christian life. Prayer is just one other thing that you complete on your list of duties for the day, and you row, and you row, and you row. It's work. Some start to drift. You're experiencing some of the conditions of the rower, spiritual dryness and distance from God, but the paddles have been put back in the boat. The Bible is placed on the shelf, and prayers start to dry up. Life simply takes us downstream, farther and farther away from our first love. Cynicism rises in our hearts and our spirits, and we question if God really cares us, cares about us. We question if He hears us. In some cases, we move to sinking. Forward motion in the Christian life is gone. Numbness and hardness take over. Your faith and your identity in Christ no longer guide your decisions or your perceptions or the way you live your life. Spiritual despair fills the boat. Shame is added to your cynicism. We stop praying. We no longer feel the sting of seemingly being unheard and having our prayers unanswered. And we slowly sink farther and farther away from the Lord. If this is you, if you feel like you're drifting, if you feel like you're sinking, I want you to know here tonight, this is a safe place to be honest with the Lord about those things. Lord willing, this is a safe church where you can be honest with others about where you're at. None of us sail forever. All of us struggle. Some of us row and our arms are exhausted, and you're ready to put the oars in the boat. It's time for you to talk to someone. It's time for you to come to a night where we talk about prayer for a while, and we pray for you, and we ask God to help you. All of us have been in those places. So even before we move forward tonight, I want you to spend two or three minutes in your seat. I'd love for you just to close your eyes, look down, talk to the Lord, ask Him where you're at. In some cases, you're aware of where you're at. If you're not, ask the Lord to talk to you a little bit about your prayer life and where you're starting from. And in about two minutes, I'll close this up in prayer, and then we're going to move forward. So go ahead and talk to the Lord.
Father, you know where each person is here tonight in their spirit and in their relationship with you and in their prayer life. Help us all to take that next step of growth deeper with you. May we love you more. May we serve you with more of our heart. But also take us deeper into our prayer lives. Allow us to trust in you more. Allow us to get more excited about running into your throne room, yelling, Abba, Father. God, use tonight to continue to move us forward. Allow us to be honest with you and even honest with one another when we talk about our prayer life. None of us are there. This is a growing point, a growing edge for all of us. So we ask you to grow us in the name of your Son. Amen. So no matter where you are, there's hope. No matter how you feel, there's tomorrow. God will grow us. God will change us. Prayer should feel like dinner with close friends. Prayer should feel like a dinner with close friends. We just enjoy each other. And the longer you spend time with one another, the more you laugh, the more you smile, the more you enjoy one another. That's what prayer is supposed to feel like. And my hope is that we all start moving more and more in that direction. So we've gone really big, and we're going to get a little bit smaller. We're going to talk about two prerequisites that we need to understand before we jump into our prayer life. Two prerequisites. And if you remember over the summer, we looked at the book of Psalm. In the book of Psalm, uh, it's basically a book of prayers and praises throughout the entire book. But the book of Psalm doesn't start with prayer. The book of Psalm in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the first two Psalms, starts with the Word of God and the Son of God. So before we even talk to God in the book of Psalm, before we jump into the Psalms, it tells us that we need to know His Word and we need to know His Son. So those are also the two starting points in the New Testament. So let's start there. The first prerequisite is understanding the work of Christ. If we have an accurate view of what Christ has accomplished for us, we'll start to have an accurate view of our relationship, the right understanding of what it means to know God, to grow in God, and to flourish in our prayer life. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. What is the, the basis for our right standing with God? What is the basis for our righteousness before God? Those verses tell us that through faith in Christ, we have a right standing before God. Through faith, in Christ, we have a right standing before God. The Bible calls that righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness. He covers us fully. We have just as much right to walk into God's presence as Jesus himself has. If we're in Christ, if we've placed our faith in him, you have a right standing before God. You have full access to him. In Romans chapter 8, is there anything that can prevent us from having this right standing? Is there anything that will stop us? In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, I should have worn my glasses. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That includes you. You're a created thing. There's nothing that you can do to remove your right standing before God nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing that can remove your right standing before the Lord, not even you. Nothing. In Christ, you have a right standing before God. You've been given his righteousness. It's yours to enjoy now, tomorrow, and for all of eternity, no matter what happens to you, through you, with you, you always have that right standing with the Lord. So, 
what are some of the lies that we often believe that cause, cause us to think that we're not fully accepted before the Lord or not desired before the Father? There's several things that kind of move into our heart. One of those things is guilt. When we look back through our life and realize and think about the things that we've done, oftentimes we'll just say to ourselves, I don't want to go into his presence because I don't want him to see the things that I've done, the thoughts that I've had, the things I've looked at, the motivations that have been in the background as I've tried to do good things. So guilt keeps us out of the presence of God. Also shame. We say things like, if he truly knew what I was like, if he knew me down to the core, he wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. You and I, at different points in our life, have been rejected by different people, sometimes by the people that God's called to care for us. We've been rejected. So inside of us, there's always this question we have, is this the day that God rejects me? Is this the day where he gives up on me? Many of you have gone through broken relationships and have been hurt by those. So it's easy in the background to say, is this the day that God breaks up this relationship with me? Because that's your experience, okay? So that's also a thing that we struggle with. And fear, is it time? Is he done with me? Has he given up? So shame, guilt, and fear oftentimes hold us back. But let's look at John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To as many as received Jesus, to them, to those who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, he says that you are his child, you are his son, or you are his daughter. You are fully adopted. When I come home, I've got teenagers now, so they don't do this anymore, but when they were younger, seven, eight, six, seven, five, six, they would run up and hug me, they'd grab my leg, daddy's home, daddy's home, and they grab me. They have full access to me because they're my children. Full access. Sunday morning, when I walk in here, if you do that to me, it's gonna be awkward, okay? So I don't need you all running up on me, hugging me, grabbing me, grabbing my leg, that's weird because you and I have a different relationship than that. But you're God's child. You're his son. You're his daughter. You're allowed at any moment to stop everything, to run up and to grab a hold of his leg, to grab his hand. And you have full access to him always because you're his child. Guilt doesn't stop that. Shame doesn't get to be in the way. Fear is abolished and destroyed. You have full access all the time to your loving, good, and gracious Father who said, you are mine, and nothing can change that. It has been declared. When the infinite God of the universe who lives outside of time, space, and matter declares something, it's done. It's set. You're a child of God forever. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 says, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So therefore, in response to this truth, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You will have a time of need. You will need mercy. You will need grace. Here it says, we're exhorted to run into the throne room. And he doesn't speak it to an individual. He says, let us. This is a bit of a team sport. Prayer sometimes is a team sport. Let us run together, grab the arm of the person beside you, and enter into his throne room 
in your time of need to receive mercy and grace. In my head, and I'm going to try to explain this in a way that gets it into your head, though I'm not sure if this is going to work. Uh, I picture you and I standing out in the rain. It's cold, it's damp, and we're sick of being in the rain. We're probably going to get sick because we're spending so much time in the rain. And then a, door's o- a door opens, and there's just this warm glow that comes out of the door. And there's our Heavenly Father. He's like, why are you still standing in the rain? This door has been unlocked the entire time. I've told you, I want you to come and be with me. You don't need to stand there. Come on in. And then we can walk in together, and we instantly dry off. And there we are in the warmth of the Father in his throne room, receiving a warm blanket, receiving food, receiving everything we need. That door is always open. Why do we always stand in the rain? It becomes a habit. You get used to being wet. I want to let you know, you don't have to be wet anymore. All right, the illustration's getting bad. You don't have to be wet anymore. The door is always open. The throne room, you have full access to it. Grab somebody, run in. The Father's smiling face is waiting for you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, kind of says the same thing. It says, let us, okay, so when you hear let us, that's exhortation language. It's not like, if you feel like it, all right, that's not the type of language we're using here. It's a, let's do this. So, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Let us do it, okay? If you're not drawing near, here's an exhortation to go for it. You've got everything you need. Because you've believed in Christ, you've been sprinkled and made clean. All you have to do is walk in, okay? So our God who's relational, our God who's conversational, our God who's created out of abundance to give freely to you is saying, come in and get some. The popcorn's popping in the back. I'll give you some. Just come on in. It's available. We just need to go in. At the bottom there, there's a good quote from Keller. It says, Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have a relationship with God as Father. Jesus was forgotten so that we could be remembered forever, from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus Christ bore all the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. That is the cost of prayer. Jesus paid the price so God could be our Father. That should overwhelm you just a bit. Jesus died so you could go into his presence. That door that he opened to help you get out of the rain, it wasn't opened at no cost. There was great cost to create that door and then to open it. Why not walk through it? The word of God. God begins the conversation with us through his word. The word teaches us our greatest needs. It teaches us his will, and God's word teaches us how to pray. To interact with God's word is to interact with God himself. Don't miss that. To interact with God's word is to interact with God himself. Psalm 1, the introduction to the book of prayers, is not about prayer, but about the need to start with meditating on God's word for guidance as we pray. So the word teaches us about God, to whom we pray, and God uses his word to give us instruction and examples of how to address him in prayer. So a guy named Donald Whitney wrote a book talking about praying the Bible, praying the word. In there, he quotes a guy named McChain, an old Puritan, and just says, 
Turn the Bible into prayer. I love that simple quote. It's a good one to remember. Turn your Bible into prayer. The time that you spend reading, let it just flow into praying. So, how should I pray? Well, the Bible itself can be our teacher. We open it, and we use it to converse with God. Its words guide our thoughts, our hearts, and our words directing us to the Lord. The Word of God is a bottomless well of wisdom that allows us to drink deeply of the Lord, guiding our prayer-filled times with Him. Johnny Piper says this, open the Bible, start reading it, and pause at every verse, and simply turn it into prayer. So here's how Donald Whitney in his book defines his method. To pray the Bible, you simply go through the passage, line by line, talking to God about whatever comes to your mind as you read. How easy is that? Anyone can truly do it. Open up God's Word. Read a little bit. Just talk to God about what comes into your mind. Read a little bit more. Talk to the Lord more about what comes to your mind. And the next time you read that same passage, your mind might go in a completely different direction. Your conversation with God might go in a completely different direction. I'm going to bounce down to the bottom. There's two quotes down there I want to read. One's by Johnny Erickson Tata. If you know who she is, it's an amazing story. God's Word is living, and so it infuses our prayers with life and vitality. God's Word is also active. It's active, not passive. It's active, injecting energy and power into our prayers. Oftentimes, I don't feel like praying. After I spend some time in God's Word, now I feel like praying. Like, that's what God's Word does, is it reminds you of who He is, what He's done, and then you can't help talking to Him about it, okay? God's Word oftentimes leads into prayer. Prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through His Word and His grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with Him. All right, session two. So that was the first session. Now we're going to session two. We're going to drill down into some details. We're going to look at some subject matter and what the Bible says about particular things. First is God's command. So what do we learn in each verse? I'm going to summarize these verses for you. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. We are to be devoted to prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, right at the beginning, it says, devote yourselves to prayer. So there it is twice, the word devote or devotion. What does it mean to be devoted to something? If you're devoted to something, it means it takes priority in your schedule. Like it goes in first, right? And then everything else kind of circles around it. What he's saying here is that put prayer on your calendar, put prayer into your day first, and everything else then falls into place around it. Devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Just don't stop. You just keep praying. Pray without ceasing. I've heard some people try to say that that's not what it really means. No, it means pray without ceasing. Like that's the call, is to keep praying. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, the first part says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Same concept as 1 Thessalonians. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times. How? In the Spirit. May God be guiding that. So, so I've had days where, I think especially back in college, before you're married, before you have kids, before you have a full-time job, I remember having days where I felt like I was talking to the Lord 
almost all day long. Now, I also can think of lots of days where I didn't talk to him at all. I mean, we're all going to have days like that where sometimes you're interacting with him and you're just kind of, you're, you're in the groove and you're talking to him. And sometimes you just struggle to even start praying. Uh, Eugene Peterson has a really good quote here. kind of goes back to some of the other things we've talked about. It says, it is easy to think of prayer as simply a one-on-one experience with God. Prayer is also to be experienced in community with our brothers and sisters before the throne. We read this verse just a little bit ago. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. The Psalms are also an example of praying with people. These people together in the Psalms pray together. They worship together in community. All the Psalms are prayers in community. Prayer is not just a private exercise, but it's a family convocation, okay? It's the family job. It's the role of the family as a whole to be praying together. God's promises. Oh, okay, these verses have been used incorrectly so many times it makes me crazy inside. So we need to talk about them, okay? Uh, in a little bit, we're going to talk about conditions to prayer. Like God actually expects some things, like maybe praying according to His will, pray in light of His greatest desires. But sometimes we take these particular verses out of the context of Scripture and use them and basically say, God, I expect you, God, to do exactly what this verse says. When you put the verse back into Scripture, into context, it means something a little bit different. The first one is John chapter 16, verse 24. John chapter 16, verse 24. It says, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy will be made full. Ask in my name. Now, you've probably heard that. You probably do it. At the end of a prayer, I just did it. In your name, amen. In your name. Is it like I have this stamp that God gave me where I just stamp the prayer at the end? I get whatever I want. I want a pony. In your name. I want a bigger house. In your name. I mean, is that how it works? I mean, isn't that what it says? Well, what does in your name mean? In your name means more than just saying it. In your names, it means the thing that you're requesting, the thing that you're asking for, reflects the desires of Jesus. It's being done for his sake. In his name means for his sake, with his intentions in mind, with his words in mind, with his glory in mind. If those things aren't true, then you're not actually praying for it in his name, even if you say it, okay? Saying it doesn't make it so. It's not a stamp. Put the stamp away. I'd rather hear you pray words and prayers that actually are for his glory in his name without even saying in his name. Because I think we get it backwards in the way we pray. Are your prayers in his name, with his purposes in mind, with his glory as the highest priority, with his intentions, his words in the forefront of your mind? If the answer is yes, then you are already praying in, in his name, whether you say it or not. That's important to remember. Otherwise, you start questioning God. Why didn't I get that pony? I asked for a bigger house. This is only 3,000 square feet. You know I need 3,500 to be happy. Like you start questioning God. So you have to know God's word correctly and interpret it correctly or else you're going to be disappointed. In his name means in his, it means for his sake. Wow, can you tell I wanted to say that really bad? Makes me crazy. All right. Prayer. Here's, a, here's another good quote. Prayer change, prayer change from musical clamor 
to beautiful music once the father's hand grasped the little child's hands. Did you catch that? Prayer changed from musical clamor to beautiful music once the father's hands grasped the little child's hands. In his name references our need for God to take us by the hand and to guide us down the road of prayer. It's not a stamp making God bend to our wills. Okay, let's do another one. Matthew 21, 22. It says, And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. The context there is Jesus just, remember when he withers that fig tree? He's just like, there were no figs. He's like, and he just, and the whole thing withers. So he does that. And the disciples are like, why'd you do that? And they wanted to be able to do it. He said, if you believe, you can move mountains with your prayer. And then he says this. He says, and all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. So there's a healthy way of viewing this, and there's an unhealthy way of viewing this. What are you believing in here? What are you supposed to believe in here to receive? Are you supposed to believe really hard in what you prayed for? Is it belief in your prayer that causes God to receive it and answer it? So there's a whole movement in Christianity, the the name it, claim it movement, where basically if you just, they tell you if you believe with all your heart in the prayer that you just prayed, God has to answer it. So their answer is, the believing here is, as long as I believe in my own prayer, if I believe in it enough, I get it. If I, I have to draw a circle around it, or I just have to claim it, or I just have to believe it really hard, if I don't get it, it's because I didn't believe hard enough. So next time I'll believe a little bit more, and next time I'm going to get whatever it is that I want. I'm going to name it, and I'm going to claim that sucker. All right? Dangerous. Dangerous. No point in Scripture does God say, if you have enough faith in yourself, then I'm going to take care of you. That is the opposite of the gospel, is it not? So believing what? Believing him. And the moment I say believing him, everything changes. When I say believing him means that I trust the answer to the prayer to his guidance, to his wisdom, to his point of view on my circumstances and my situation. I trust that he's going to answer it in the way that it needs to be answered to grow me, to change me, to transform me, to love him more. It's not me believing in what I prayed. It's me believing in the God to whom I've prayed. Now I start getting excited about this verse because I get so tired of hearing it talked about, interpreted, and applied incorrectly. All right, so I'm done with my rant. Thank you for just doing that with me. It was cathartic. I feel better at the bottom. There's two good quotes. Let's read those. Prayers are tools that God uses to work his will in our bodies and souls. Prayers are tools that we use to collaborate with his work. Kierkegaard says this, prayer does not change God but it changes him who prays. There's no point where you ever get God into a chokehold. There's no verse. If you think there's a verse that basically puts you in a position where you have power over God or he owes you a certain answer, you've misinterpreted your Bible. You never get God in a chokehold, okay? It just doesn't happen anywhere ever. Spend a little time watching certain stations on TV, and they're going to tell you that's exactly how it works. That is not how it works. And then they're going to ask for some money. Don't send the money either. All right. Felt like I had to say that. All right. Next section, prayer works. Prayer works. Uh, Each of these verses are 
is Paul speaking. In the first verse, 2 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11, the context is Paul is suffering big time in 2 Corinthians. He's going through some horrible stuff. There's a point in 2 Corinthians where he talks about how many times he's been beat on the back with a whip. He's been beaten and tossed over walls. Things are hard. And here Paul says, is he's talking to the Corinthians. He says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. You also joining in helping us through your prayers. So Paul says in those verses that through your prayers, you're joining in our ministry and you're helping us in our ministry. He believes that as the Corinthians are praying, God is acting and moving and changing circumstances, that more is happening in the ministry because they are praying. Philippians 1.19, he believes because he's sitting in a prison cell, he says he expects to be delivered through their prayers. He believes that because the Philippians are praying, that there's deliverance coming. Paul believes in prayer. He's betting on it. Philemon 22, he's preparing and hoping to come and visit this guy named Onesimus. All right, he's planning on a visit. And he says to Onesimus in verse 22, I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. I hope that through your prayers, that I'm actually going to be able to show up and hang out with you. So all three of these verses, we see Paul saying, I'm relying on prayers. Prayers matter. Through prayers, God does choose to go into action. Okay, we're going to jump. Let's go to C. So what are the conditions given in each verse? We're on C, conditions for answered prayer. We're going to be jumping a little bit. The clock just keeps moving, so we're going to have to jump over some things. But you can go back and read them all yourself. All right, what are the conditions given in each verse? Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, basically says, Ask, seek, knock, and you will receive, find, and have open doors. Ask, seek, knock. The response is, receive, find, and be given open doors. John 15, 7. John 15, 7. This is that whole section on the vine and the branch. In verse 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. That verse sheds a lot of light on those other verses that we talked about under God's promises. If we're abiding in Jesus and Jesus' words are abiding in us, then we're in a position where we know his desires. We're passionate about his kingdom, not our little kingdom, his kingdom, and we get it from his point of view the best that we can, and now we're getting somewhere. Now we're in a position to start asking the Lord requests that matter, that he wants to hear, that he longs to answer. Now we're working with God, we're praying in accordance with his will when we're abiding in him and his word is abiding in us. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, it says, Ask according to his will. And if we ask according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, he will answer us. But the condition there is that we're asking according to his will, which means you need to know what his will is, which calls you again back to the word of God. It calls you again back to the word of God. That quote says, If we, if we will make use of prayer 
not to wrestle from God advantages for ourselves or our dear ones or to escape tribulations and difficulties, but rather to call down upon ourselves and others those things which will glorify the name of God, then we'll, we shall see the strongest, boldest promises of the Bible about prayer fulfilled in our weak little prayer life. Then we will see such answers to prayer as we have never thought possible. When we stop wrestling with God just to get the little things that we want, and start getting excited about the big things that God wants, awesome things start to happen. That's my paraphrase of that, okay? That's my paraphrase. Um, it's exciting. Hindrances to prayer. James chapter 4, verse 3. It tells, it tells us that oftentimes we don't receive because we ask with wrong motives. We don't receive because we ask with wrong motives. And our intention is to spend what we receive on our own pleasures, so we ask with wrong motives to take what we get and to use it for ourselves. It's a self-centered type of prayer. That's a hindrance to prayer. That's why God doesn't answer those prayers. George Mueller says this, let no one profess to trust God and yet lay up for future wants. Otherwise, the Lord will first send him to the hoard he has amassed before he can answer the prayer for more. Okay? Psalm 66, 18 says, if I, had cherished my, if I had cherished sin in my heart, you would not have listened. If I love my sin more than I love God, God's saying, well, just enjoy, go have fun with your sin. You love that, I'm not going to listen to your prayers. The first thing you need to talk to me about is that sin that you're loving too much. Until we talk about that, until we have that conversation, there's nothing else we need to talk about. If I had cherished sin in my heart, you would not have listened so what do we kind of learn from these conditions? I would sum it up this way. It's about His Word. Our prayer life is about His will. Our prayer life is about His pleasure and His mission. What it's not about, it's not about our wants. It's not about our will. It's not about our preference. It's not about our perspective, unless, unless our perspective becomes His mission our passion becomes his pleasure. Our will becomes his will. When our wants are based upon his word, now prayer becomes powerful. So we just need to transition our stuff to be his stuff. When his mission is my focus, when his kingdom is what I desire, and my little kingdom doesn't matter as much, the prayer life that you have and will experience begins to flourish. It changes everything. Prayer is not about comfort Prayer is about change. Prayer is not about asking God to be more comfortable. Prayer is about asking God to radically change and transform who I am to look and to sound and to smell more like Him. It's about change. Session two is done. Uh, we're going to have an intermission. But before we go to intermission... Pastor John Piper has this wonderful section where he talks about a wartime mentality with prayer. Sometimes we forget we're in a spiritual battle. And when we forget we're in a spiritual battle, it changes the way we pray. We're praying about little things. We're forgetting the fact that there's an enemy and we're staring down the barrel of a gun and we pray about little things. What John does here, Pastor Piper, he pushes us to think rightly about our prayer life. So you're going to listen to John and then you're going to get 10 to 15 minutes. You're going to get your intermission. We'll come back in here about 8.05. Uh, intermission. We've got food out there. We've got drinks. Just grab and come right back in here. You can eat in here. We can clean it. There's no mess you can make that we can't clean. 
Come back in, and we're going to start up again. So listen to John, and take your break. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom for ringing up the butler to change the thermostat. Got that? It is a wartime walkie-talkie to call in firepower because the enemy is greater than we are. You try to turn this into a domestic intercom to bring another pillow, it malfunctions. And you wonder why. It's not made to be an intercom. It's made to be a wartime walkie-talkie. I'm getting it straight out of verse 16. I chose you. I got a mission for you. And it isn't another pillow. It isn't thermostat changes. It's fruit bearing. At Cass Lake and Azerbaijan and San Diego, it's fruit bearing. Where you are, in your family, in your personality, more fruit in 2009. I got a mission for you so that the walkie-talkie will work because that's what it's designed for. If you wonder why it might not be working, just ask, am I on mission? It works on mission. It's what it's for. It's for change and power. It's for fighting the devil. It's for putting yourself in really hard circumstances where you can't manage it. And you're crying out to God. That's what it's for. You don't need to ring up the general to bring in the air cover if you've got one wounded shoulder to pick off. Soldier to pick off. You just, if you can manage this, you won't pray. All right, welcome back. <clears throat> hope you got your snacks. Hope you got something to drink. I can hear everything rustling, so that's good. Feels like you're at the movies. So we're on session three. Session three. So like I told you, we're going to go big. Then we're going to drill down into some verses and some concepts. Or we're going to go a little bigger again. So here's us going a little bigger again. Session three, gospel basics. The first thing I want to look at is our prayer life in light of our relationship with God. Depending on how you view God... And depending on how you understand and view the layers of your relationship with God will determine how you approach God and how frequently you approach God and what you do when you do approach Him. So I think it's important for us just to take a moment and to walk through all the different types of relationships that we have with the Lord. It is layered. It is complex. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but this is good to say again. Prayer should feel like you're spending time with friends and family around the dinner table. It should be enjoyable. It's like the thing you look forward to all week long, okay? Think of your favorite people to be with and your favorite food. That's what prayer should feel like. Jesus is our older brother. Jesus is our older brother. He's gone before us. The temptations that you face, he faced those. The sufferings that you deal with, he has suffered and gone through those. He's our older brother he gets it, okay? I was the oldest brother growing up, so I got in trouble all the time. And what I would watch is my youngest brother, Nathan, would sit there and watch me get in trouble, and then he knew not to do it. So Nathan never got in trouble, or at least he knew how to hide it better. Actually, he was probably worse than I was, but he just never got caught. So he learned from watching me. Now, this is a little different than our relationship with Jesus, but he learned from watching me what not to do, 
okay? When you're the younger sibling, you get to watch the older sibling, and you learn, and you look up to him. That's what we're like with Jesus. We look up to him, and we learn from watching him, how he went through things, how he handled things, the types of conversations he had, the types of relationships that he had. The Lord is our Father, which means he cares. It means he wants the best for us. He seeks our spiritual maturity. If you have a five-year-old asking for a gun, you're not going to give it to him. Well, this is West, I don't know, in West Virginia, do you give a five-year-old a gun? Some of you are nodding. Okay, okay. In the other 49 states, when a five-year-old asks for a gun, you say no, okay? Maybe not here. Now, that's just what a father does. A father knows what's best. So when you're requesting something, you know that you're talking to a father who's going to take care of you. He's going to take what you're requesting and kind of redeem it and improve it and give you what you really need because he loves you and cares for you. The Lord is also our closest friend. He's our best friend. He knows everything about us. Like those times when you were watching a movie and you just laughed until you cried, he was there with you during that moment. He was probably laughing too. Those moments where your heart is broken, he was there with you in those moments. He is your closest friend. In my background, there was a point when I lost a closest friend through some terrible circumstances. That was kind of a moment for me as a young man when I talked to the Lord and I said, I lost my closest friend. Will you be my best friend? And that was a point in my life where my prayer life changed a lot, where I started going to him just all the time, talking to him about everything that was happening, because the person who I used to talk to wasn't there anymore. Now, relationships and people in your life are going to come and go. The Lord will always be there. He can forever be your best friend. Talk to him like that. Spend time with him like that. He's also our teacher. He knows the lessons that we need to learn. You and I may not always be aware of the lessons we need to learn, but he's the master teacher. He gets it. He knows the lessons that you and I need to learn. He understands the process of growth that we need to go through and where we need encouragement, where we need redirection, where we need discipline, where we need a new point of view. He gets all those things. He's a master teacher. So he's going to walk you through some flourishing, good times. He's going to walk you through some harder times. Sometimes it'll be on a mountaintop. Sometimes it'll be in a valley. But the Lord knows how to use each and every circumstance, each and every situation to grow you and to change you. He's a master teacher. He gets it. He's also our coach. He's put us on mission. I talked about that two weeks ago in a sermon. Like, we're on mission. He's called us to go to all nations, to every person. Until everyone has heard the name of Jesus, we're not done. We're on a mission. And the Lord functions sometimes as our coach. Grab the ball. Get up. Time to go. Let's push. Get in the weight room. Like he functions like our spiritual coach, and we need him to do that. So sometimes you'll feel that gentle prodding. Sometimes you're going to hear the whistle. Get back in the game. Talk to your neighbor. It's time to go forward in your workplace. He's our coach. So sometimes we need to talk to him about the mission that we're on and get his coaching, get him to push us, get him to motivate us. He's also the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all, sovereign, in control of all things. So as we approach him, we're not just, we're walking into a throne room with our father, our best friend, our coach, but also Hebrews says that God is a consuming fire. 
He's still the Lord of all things. He's King of kings, Lord of lords. We walk in there, and there should be some part of us that still quakes a little bit, that shudders a little bit in his presence, just out of respect and in awe of who he is. There's the personal aspect of God, and then there's the sovereign, infinite, almighty aspect of God. Both of those things are true in our relationship with him. So as we go in to talk to him, we know that he's in control of every detail. We know that he is loving. It's important to remember this characteristic as we go into our times of prayer and to spend time with him. He wants what's truly best for us. Sometimes you don't know what's truly best for you. You and I know what we perceive to be most comfortable and most convenient, but that may not be what's truly best for us. A loving God gives us what's best for us. And what's best for us is to know him more. There's nothing better in life than knowing him a little bit more each and every day. There is no end to that. There's nothing better than that. So everything that he's giving us, everything that we're going through, good, bad, he, as our loving God, is using that thing to grow us in our knowledge of him. That is what's truly best for us. He's also all wise. He knows what is truly best for us. He doesn't just want what's best for us. He knows what's best for us, so we can trust him in the process, and he's patient. He sees the long game. He's already out ahead of you. He gets it. We talked about that parade idea, like he's already in tomorrow. He knows how today and what you're going through, good or bad, easy or hard, happy or sad, he knows how that is going to grow and change you even when you don't know how it's going to grow or change you. He is patient. So, based on our relationship with him, how would he respond to a request that would not be best for us, or would not be best for us in that moment, or wouldn't actually be meeting our greatest need? He would answer in such a way that he would give us what truly is best for us. He's always helping us with what our greatest need truly is, and it's knowing him more, trusting him more, falling more in love with who he is and what he's done. Our greatest need is spiritual growth always. That is really hard to hear when you're in the middle of struggling with suffering or disease or loss. But our greatest need each and every day is always more of Jesus. Spiritual growth, right perspective, spiritual understanding and wisdom. That's always our greatest need. So often God will answer our prayers in such a way as to challenge us and to grow us spiritually. We maybe didn't ask for it, but that's how he responds to our prayers. He always hears. He always answers in a way that represents all the aspects of his relationship with us. So as he's answering your prayers, all these things are always true all the time. He's thinking on all these levels because he also has these relationships with you, this layered relationship we have with God. He also has that layered relationship with us. So he knows when he needs to coach. He knows when he needs to teach. He knows when he just needs to comfort and care. He knows when he needs to give you an example to move forward. He knows he understands. He gets them all perfectly in his mind, even if we don't get them all perfectly in ours. At the bottom it says, the more we know God, the more we will love and trust him, producing a heart and prayer life of faith and intimacy. Okay, so in terms of like how big we're going to go, we just were kind of like in the middle. Now we're going to go really big again, and then we're going to drill down. If you've been with me before in like the gospel class or some other things I've taught, you've seen this before. 
So you already know the answer. So maybe don't yell it out loud. Let other people think a little bit. This question just haunted me for a long time. So I just started thinking through it, and I think with your help, we've come to the right conclusions. Matt preached on the fact that God creates. God created all things, okay? And when he created all things, he created a place called Eden. Who lived in Eden? Adam and Eve. Good. Nobody said it, but... <laughs> so, there was a fall. <clears throat> they sinned. Sin broke all things. All things. Their vertical relationship, their horizontal relationships, the world itself was cursed because of sin. We know that Jesus saves, and then one day, God's going to restore all things, and we're going to be in a place called heaven. Everyone who places their faith in Christ is fully saved and ends up in heaven. If you can think back to Genesis, Adam and Eve hung out with God, but it kind of looked like this from what, now we don't know a whole lot, but it says that they'd hang out with each other in the garden, and they'd go for walks together, okay? So they just kind of hung out. They kind of hung out. The picture we get in heaven is just a little different than that. It's people like jumping on their faces, throwing crowns at his feet, worshiping, proclaiming, shouting, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's what heaven looks like. But this place was holy, right? Like there was no sin here. So why does heaven just have a different tone and feel to it than Eden does. Do you have it in your head? Did you figure it out? What changed? This changed. God took his creation through a plan of redemption. God took his creation through a plan of redemption. So Eden was perfect and holy, but it was never redeemed. So by going through this process of being redeemed, in heaven we know so much more about God than Adam and Eve ever would have in the Garden of Eden. So with more knowledge, you get more worship. With more knowledge, you get more worship. So God takes this plan, and over time, he reveals more and more of himself. So there was a period of time in the Old Testament before Jesus came. What did we learn about God in this time? Well, we learned a couple things. He calls forth a group of people and calls them his own and he does a lot for them. He pulls them, well, first he starts them, and through miracles, he grows them to be numerous through miracles. And then they end up being enslaved in Egypt. And through these mighty works, God takes the people of Israel out of Egypt. So God's being gracious. He's showing his power. He's showing his mercy. He's showing, I am indeed your God. You have not been forgotten. He takes them out into the wilderness to give them his law and to take them to the land that he had promised them to be to to have, to enjoy, to live in forever. How did the people respond to that? In each and every circumstance, with every blessing, with every show of power, you see them basically respond first with a little bit of faith, and then either quickly or slowly, they would drift away from God and begin to worship something else. Over and over again, you'd see that no matter how good God was, no matter how much he showed his power and his love and his patience and his commitment to them, they would still, over time, leave and not be committed to God. So over this period of time here, we see God being crazy patient. 
I've often heard that God is considered full of wrath in the Old Testament. That's not what I see. Yeah, he gets angry when they're disobedient, but he displays crazy love, incredible mercy, grace upon grace upon grace. No matter how bad they err, he still sticks by his people, and he loves them. He promises them. He says, one day your future is going to get better and brighter. So during this period of time through ups, through incredible downs, whether it's an up or a down, we're learning about the Lord. What we learn is there's a need for a Messiah. Man is more sinful than we could have ever imagined. God is more loving and gracious than we ever could have dreamed. But someone needs to save these people from their sin. So Jesus comes and he saves us from our sins. In just this moment alone, in just the work of Christ alone, the reality of who God is, is magnified. It says that God demonstrates his love in this, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. So what is the proclamation, the demonstration, the revealing of the love of God? It's in the work of Jesus. Nowhere do you see the love of God more on display than in Jesus. So in the cross, in the work of what Jesus did for us, the character of God, his love, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his holiness, his wrath, all those things are put on display, seen with more accuracy, seen with more clarity than ever before. So over time, through this redemptive plan, God is revealing himself to us. We asked earlier, how does an infinitely beautiful God reveal himself to his finite creation? The answer is over time. So over time, he's revealing more and more of what he's like. Now, in the church, as you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, as we have ups and downs as a church, as individuals within our families, as nations are coming to know him and some nations are drifting away from him, we're seeing good, we're seeing bad, and we're getting to know God more and more and more. So this whole plan was that over time, God would reveal more of himself to his creation that he would elicit praise that they would respond with worship, that they would shout, worthy is the Lamb, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, because he revealed more of who he is through the good and through the bad. Let's go to the next point. I want you to keep that in the back of your head. So the question was, is how does God reveal himself to the world? The answer is, over time through the gospel, which is his redemptive plan for the ages. When I say redemptive, it's his pulling us out of slavery to sin and setting us free to be in Christ. So how does God reveal himself to us over time? So we kind of saw how he reveals himself to his whole creation over time. How does he reveal himself to us over time? Each of us have gone through a period of time in our life where we did not know Jesus. Okay? We were living our lives however we wanted. We were not forgiven. We did not know him. As Jesus, as you place your faith in him, Jesus saves you fully, completely, and thoroughly. You receive his right standing before God when you come to know him. And then after that starts this process of being transformed by Christ. Transformed by Christ. We start to grow more and more in him. Why is this a curvy line? 
Because in life, you have ups and you have downs, don't you? You've never met somebody, nor will you ever meet someone who just has a nice straight line here for their growth in Christ. You have ups and you have downs. Now, how do you measure? So if we're measuring going from here to here, how do we measure growth in the Christian life? How is one person more mature than the other person? Is it how much they know? No, that's not it at all. In fact, Satan knows God's word better than you do. Is he more spiritually mature than you? Does he love God more than you? No, he knows God more than you do. Does he love him more? No, he doesn't. So it's not knowledge. In fact, when we study the Great Commission, we're called to teach everyone to observe all that Christ commanded. So it's not how much you know, it's what you do with what you know. What was Jesus' greatest commandment? Do you remember? Mark chapter 12, verse 30 says, love the Lord your God with all you got, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So Mark 12, 30 says that. And the second commandment is like the first. It has the same level of priority is what that means. And love your neighbor as yourself. So we're called to love the Lord with everything. We're called to love one another with everything. Now, if we love Christ, you have to follow with me here. If we love Christ, how does our life start to change? Jesus says in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love me, you will obey my commands. If I truly love you well, I'm not going to put me first. I'm going to put you first. So I'm going to live a life of service, okay? So I'm going to try not to just know about the Lord, but I'm going to live for the Lord. So the way I summarize spiritual growth is love and service. Okay, so how, how have I grown in the Lord? I love him more and more willing to do whatever it takes to display that to him and to others. Okay, so that's the measuring stick. Now, the question is, what does God, how does God take us from here to here? What is the process that he takes us through? Is it only through good times that we grow? Is it only through good times? Oftentimes, it's when you're most comfortable, when you're most at ease, is when you drift the farthest from the Lord. So what we just looked at for God's plan for the world, did he only use the good times to grow his people and to reveal himself? Oftentimes, he used the hardest moments to reveal himself. When they were in slavery is when he revealed himself. He takes people through hard things to show us more and more of what he's like. So good things and hard things are both used by the Lord to reveal himself to us in a way that we love him more, know him more, and changes our response to him when we get to heaven. So that's how we measure from there to there. Now, in spiritual growth, in our prayer life, there's two major things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis as a Christian. Two major things. We're going to talk through each of them. One is suffering, and the other one is sin. Suffering and sin. So under point C, it says God's plan to transform us. Now, I want to pause for a second with the word transform. We didn't use the word God's plan to clean us up on the outside. God's plan to make us look better. 
That's not at all what was said here. The word is the word transform. So it's more than like an outward making you squeaky clean. It's an inward transformation. There's an inward renewal. What God does is something radical. He changes the way you think, the way you feel, the way you make decisions. Your longings change. Your wants change. Your purposes change. Your goals change. Your perspective is altered to look more like His. Your source of joy changes. Your relationships change. Your values change. He transforms and changes everything about you from the inside out. How does suffering and sin fit into that? Let's talk about suffering first. Will all of you suffer? Will you? Yeah. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. If you haven't suffered yet, the process of returning to dust is a process of suffering, okay? Some of you who are maybe in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever age you are, when you get up in the morning, you're reminded that you're on your way back to dust. As your foot hurts, your low back hurts, or you go to look at the paper and you can't read it because you forgot to put your glasses on, all right? It gets harder. Part of that is suffering. Relationships cause suffering. Anything you love now has the ability to hurt you that isn't Jesus. That's suffering. All that is coming. So does the suffering in your life cause this, or does it cause the downstroke? Does it cause the upstroke, or does it cause the downstroke? I got an upstroke here. I got a downstroke back here. Okay, I think the answer is it could produce either in you. It could produce either in you, depending on how ready you are for that suffering that comes into your life. When I was in high school, um, I was, we were dating at that time. We were a part of a, a big group of friends. There were probably 15 of us. Probably 70% of them were believers. During that time, we lost someone in the group to a suicide. And when we lost that person, probably about half of that group started struggling with doubt and questioning God, and they were angry with God. And to be honest with you, many of them have still not recovered 30 years later. They haven't recovered. Another group, part of that group, actually started depending on the Lord more than ever before. I'm a pastor here at this church partly because I lost my best friend to a suicide, okay? Like, he used the suffering to radically change me. He, he used that suicide to help me look to him as my new best friend. So in that moment of suffering, like in one singular instance, I saw upstrokes and I saw downstrokes. Some were ready for suffering. They had the right perspective on suffering. Some didn't, and it caused them to walk away from the Lord or to struggle with doubt for the rest of their lives. So the best time to talk about suffering is not when you're suffering. Okay, so like some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight, don't take what we're talking about tonight, find the person who's suffering the most in your life, and share it with them, okay? Like, it's the wrong timing to share it with them. Now is a good time to talk about it. You and me talking about it right now to prepare us for what's ahead, because something's coming. If it's not raining now, the clouds are moving in. Suffering is always on its way. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Let's look at the results of trials. James says, "'Consider it all joy, my brethren.'" Okay, so all joy, just take a note of that. He doesn't say, get ticked off, get annoyed, get frustrated, get angry, doubt God. He doesn't say any of those things. He says this, consider it all 
joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Well, why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. So the result of the trials is He grows you. He changes you to where you have the right perspective of Him, your world, and relationships. Now, let's go to verses 5 and 6. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So, if you're missing out on wisdom, if you feel like you're lacking wisdom, you're called to ask God. So, if there's a lack, God takes care of the lack. What did we just learn in verses 2 through 4? How does he oftentimes get rid of what you're lacking? Trials which produce endurance so that you have nothing that you're lacking. So just be aware when you realize you're lacking wisdom, and I'm not saying don't pray this. In fact, I'm encouraging you to pray it. When you're lacking wisdom to say, Lord, I need more wisdom. Give me wisdom. His response might be, well, brother or daughter, son, here's a trial for you to go through to teach you. Because it says through trials, we grow and endurance, and we grow in endurance, and then we lack nothing. So if we're lacking something, sometimes he uses trials to grow us and to change us. And if we really get that, if we really believe that, on some level, there's actually a sense of joy going through the pain. There's a sense of joy going through the pain. So is God displaying love even in your trials and hardships? Is God displaying love even in your trials and hardships? Yeah, He really is. To protect you from suffering, to protect you from trials, to put a hedge around you so that there's no, nothing difficult going on in your life is the opposite of love. Okay, I'm not, I don't have anyone in mind here. I don't have you in mind when I say this, but have you ever hung out with parents who don't discipline their children at all? How fun are they to hang out with? Okay. I mean, how fun are their kids to hang out with? They get everything they ask for. They're never questioned. Uh, They don't have any chores. There's never any discipline. Those families, and we've been around some, they make you crazy because the children haven't learned that they have boundaries. They haven't learned right and wrong. They haven't learned a sense of consequences, okay? So my kids get to do lots of chores, right? Luke went, yay. Yeah, so <clears throat> they get to do a lot of chores. So they learn discipline, and if they don't do their chores, there's consequence, which kind of feels like a trial, or maybe it might feel like suffering to them, because sometimes we have hard conversations. But I do it because I love them with all my heart, and I want them to grow, and I want them to learn, and it's through trials, through allowing them to deal with consequences, they actually grow and are changed, and they grow in wisdom. So A loving father is going to allow their kids sometimes to go through hard things. He walks with you through it every step of the way, but the suffering isn't a sign of his presence leaving you. It's a sign of his presence being with you. So how would it change our lives? How would it change our prayer lives if we viewed hardships and sufferings as opportunities? What if the next time the clouds rolled in and the suffering poured down on you, you realized that it was an opportunity for growth? that radically changes your prayer life. Instead of saying, take this from me, you say, grow me through it. Have you ever prayed that in suffering? Not take it from me, but grow me through it. 
if we believe the Bible, if we believe that He's loving, that He's truly our Father and His presence is with us, we can say that out loud and believe it. Don't take the trials from me. Grow me through the trials, Lord. I trust you. Help me. Grow me. Change me. So how does Matthew 6, 33 through 34 fit into our discussion? These are powerful verses. The context is Jesus just said, look at the lilies of the field. I make sure that my creation is clothed. My creation is fed and clothed. I take care of the little daily needs that my creation has. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things, the the basic needs of life, all these things will be added to you. It will be taken care of. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus tells us he's going to take care of our basic needs. He says, I've got you. I know your needs. I've got you. What I want you to do is to become obsessed with, to become singularly focused on my kingdom. And I want you to seek it first. So what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of Christ is anywhere where Jesus rules and reigns. Anywhere where Jesus rules and reigns is the kingdom of Christ. So if we're seeking first the kingdom of God, sometimes that starts with me. I need his kingdom to grow in me. There are areas of my life where he does not rule and he does not reign. There are closet doors that have never been opened. So when I'm seeking first the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus, sometimes first I start by asking him to rule and reign in me. And then when I grow from there and I start thinking, rule and reign in my neighborhood, rule and reign in my family, in my circle of acquaintances, where I work, Jesus, I want to be all about your kingdom. I can't think about anything else. When we start seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting him to take care of the other things, Sometimes our prayers start getting a little bigger, a little bolder, a little more exciting, because you're talking about the rule and reign of Jesus. Are you probably praying his, his will if you're praying for the rule and reign of Jesus? Yeah, his word's abiding in you. You're abiding in him. You're all about him. So that's an exciting place to be if we can buy into that reality, if we seek first the right things. So, a question for you to be pondering is, are your prayers asking for comfort or are your prayers asking for transformation? Are your prayers asking for comfort and convenience or are you asking for change and transformation? Think about the words as they come out of your mouth. When you're praying, think about what you're saying. When you're sitting in a group and everybody's giving out their prayer request, is, every, is anyone saying, My request is that the kingdom of Christ grows at Bible Center Church. My prayer is that the kingdom of Christ grows in my heart and in my life. I pray that the kingdom of Christ goes behind the doors I try to keep closed so that Jesus doesn't see them. How about those start being some of our prayer requests? Now, we want to pray for your knee. We want to pray for your aunt and your dog. We care about those. But I would love those to come secondary because it says seek First, the kingdom of God. So as you're listening to prayer requests, is that what your group sounds like? Is that what you sound like? If not, maybe you and your group should have a conversation about Matthew 6.33.
All right. So in times of suffering, we must remember a couple things. The gospel communicates several things we need to have on our mind and in our heart. One, God's love will overcome the situation. In Christ, we are secure. Your adoption is a forever adoption. It's a forever adoption. Forever you will be a son, forever you will be a daughter. Suffering does not dethrone the king. No matter how bad it gets, he's still sitting on the throne. He's still sovereign. He's still in charge. Therefore, things are going to be okay. We have to remember, he grows his children in the sunshine, and he grows his children in the rain. Suffering leads to dependence on Christ. Cracks in us, cracks in us create space for his light to shine through us. Pain produces avenues for his comfort to flow into us. Our weakness displays his strength. Hardships cultivate faith. Trials produce endurance. Even our sin makes much of his grace. And he uses everything to make himself known to us, the good stuff, the hard stuff. So this creates an opportunity for us to fall in love with him, whether we're going through good times or bad times. He uses all things, just like he did in the redemption of the world from the Old Testament through the end of the Revelation. He's doing the same thing in your life, where over time he's revealing himself through the good stuff and through the hard stuff, through the suffering and through the blessings, to let you know him more so that you and I stand in heaven one day, shouting together, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And we'll realize we can do no better than standing in the presence of the one who we've grown to love over time, through the sufferings, through the hardships, and through the trials. With this perspective, we don't pray that God removes suffering. We pray that God uses suffering. We don't pray that God removes the rain. We pray that he grows us in the rain. We pray that hardships cultivate humility. We pray that trials produce in us a heart and a soul that loves Jesus with all of our strength. Perhaps at the end of the day, suffering's actually your friend. Perhaps at the end of the day, your suffering is your friend. As a runner, I haven't run much this year, as a used-to-be runner, I'll, I'll describe myself that way, as a used-to-be runner, you have to deal with pain. If you're running competitively and you're trying to improve, there's a point when discomfort shows up in your run. In that moment, you either choose to embrace the discomfort or you say, I give in, and you slow down. So discomfort can either be something that becomes your friend, you know it's coming, and you kind of put your arm around it and say, let's go. And you go deeper into the pain because you know it makes you a better runner, or you say, I'm slowing down. I don't like to be uncomfortable. The better runners put their arm around the pain and the discomfort, and they go faster. The same thing is true in our life. Are you going to put your arm around your suffering and say, let's do this, knowing that the Lord is there to help, to provide, to protect, to take care of you, to grow you, to change you, and to transform you every step of the way? So that's suffering. Okay, let's talk about sin. So God can use suffering to grow us and to change us. Can God use sin to grow us and to change us? Some of you, maybe no one here, because you're all very spiritual, but some people might think, well, Pastor Mike, I've been a Christian for 25, 30, 35 years. I don't really sin much anymore. This is... <laughs> That's the right response, by the way. Um, 
you're thinking, you know, I can't think of anything I really did today or thought today or an intention I had today that was really off. Like, I, I really had a good day. Like, I, I had a pretty sinless day. So let's just walk through that for a second. If, if that person happens to be here, or if you go need to go have this conversation with that person in your home. Um, the Bible's very clear that we're called to glorify the Lord in anything and everything that we do. Whether you grab a cup or you grab a sandwich, you're called to glorify the Lord with both decisions. Whether you are walking through a parking lot, stopping at a stop sign, having a conversation, eating an apple, you are called to do that for the glory of the Lord. Like that's supposed to be your intention, your motivation behind your action. Have you done everything today that you've done, everything, purely, completely for the glory of the Lord? I'll admit I didn't, okay? I didn't. So the Bible's clear that that means that I've fallen short. And what's the word used for those who fall short? It's sin. When you fall short, it's sin. I'm called to have a thankful heart in anything and everything I do. The Bible says in Romans 14, 23, that everything you do that's not done in faith is sin. So in faith, did you come here today? In faith, did you go to the bathroom? In faith, did you talk to your child? In faith, did you eat a cheeseburger? So there's a good chance that some of those things you didn't do in faith. You just kind of just did them. God's glory wasn't in your mind. You weren't saying thank you. You weren't doing it in faith. So in all those circumstances, your motivation, your intention was less than what God called it to be. So all of us all the time are falling short. I'm not sure if there's anything that I do in the day with completely pure motivations. So sin is alive and well in the life of every believer. It just is. If you don't believe that, John talks about that. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if any of you claim to be without sin, he is a liar. That's what the verse says. So if you think you don't have it, it's like a present tense thing. Like if you think you right now don't have any sin in your life, you're, you're a liar. You're deceived. You're confused. You're disconnected from the truth. Okay? So all of us are dealing with sin all the time. The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? And just and sin is a level playing field. You and I like to believe that this sin's worse than this sin. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, if you break the law at any one point, you've broken the whole thing. So if you ate a banana, not to the glory of Jesus, like you've broken, the whole thing is broken. The whole thing. Okay, the whole thing. So we're all in the same playing field. There's not someone better in this room than someone else. All of us are struggling with sin each and every moment, every single day of the entirety of our life. But the question is, what do we do with it? Okay, is it an opportunity for us to grow or is it an opportunity for us to drift and to harden against the Lord? I think there's three options. Let's work through them. Here's the good option. This is the good option. So when we find sin in our life, we do this. So we're going to call this our gospel circle. Three major components of the gospel for the growing, transforming Christian is we recognize that there's still sin in our life. But to whatever extent we find sin, grace abounds. There's always more grace than there is sin. There's always more grace than there is sin. There's also always change, growth, and transformation. 
So one thing that can happen is when we identify sin in our life, when we become aware of sin in our life, because here's the reality, most of us sleepwalk in our sin. Most of us sleepwalk in our sin. It's, it's all we know. We've become used to it. It's offensive to God, but it's normal to us. It's like the temperature in your bathtub or the temperature in your living room. Like, you're just used to living that way. So we have a tendency to sleepwalk in our sin. So when the Holy Spirit or God's Word or one of God's people or you're convicted through a message, when it pokes you and all of a sudden you become aware of a sin that you presently weren't aware of, what do you do with it? Lord willing, we do this. We run to Jesus. Now, if you're saved, do you need to ask for forgiveness? You've already been forgiven, right? Now, those are my children over there. If they do something wrong, they're still my children. But is it okay and proper for them to say, Dad, I'm sorry? Yeah, that's an okay thing to do. That's normal, okay? For us, we run to Jesus with repentance and with faith, even as a Christian. Not to be saved, but to grow. To grow. So we live a life of running to Jesus. We experience sin and we run to him, not wondering if he's going to forgive us, but rather to receive his love and grace. Lord, I am so sorry I did that today. I'd like to say I didn't intend to do it, but I probably did intend to do it. I'm so sorry that I did that, and I said that, and I thought that, and I felt that way. And I had that intention and that motivation as I did that thing. Will you forgive me? I know that you have because I trust in your cross. So I have faith. I receive your grace. I receive your love. I am amazed that you love me this much. Every time we take more sin to Jesus, we grow in our ability to understand and comprehend the love of Christ a little bit more because you've experienced more love, more grace, and more mercy than you had the moment before you ran to him. So what happens is I get to know him more. And the more I know him, the more I understand and experience his love, the more that I bathe in his grace, the more that I receive his mercy, the more I know him. So when I say worthy is the lamb, it means something a little bit more than when I said it yesterday. Because I see his worth as higher than when I saw his worth yesterday. So this process of seeing sin, becoming aware of my sin, running to Jesus in repentance and faith, changes me, grows me, my joy goes up. The joy of your salvation isn't just the moment you were saved. May the joy of your salvation only increase every day on earth while you're being transformed and being saved. So it's an ongoing, ever-growing joy. And as we enjoy that change, we realize there's a little bit more sin still in there. So this process, this circle is unending around and around. This is what the Christian life looks like. And I would love to say that you and I are always running through those circles. That was my black marker. So now I'm going to get my red marker. Whenever I grab the red marker, that means something bad's about to happen, okay? So <clears throat> here comes the other two options. And sometimes we do these. Instead of saying, I'm going to run to Jesus, I do something else. So, and what we do isn't new, there isn't anything new under the sun in terms of how we manage and take care of our sin. When Adam was in the garden, he sinned, right? He sinned. He and Eve looked at each other, and what did they say? 
we're naked, right? You guys are afraid to say that out loud. That's what they said. They realized that they were naked, and they felt shame in their nakedness. So what Adam did to fix the shame is he did that fig leaf covering. He, he tried to fix it. So Adam's response to sin, his first response was, no worries, I'm just going to fix it. And then when God shows up, where's Adam? He's hiding. He's in a bush, okay? Like the God of the universe shows up in the garden to have a conversation. He's like, Adam? He's like, I'm in the bush. I'm like, he's in a bush. So his other response to sin is, I'm just going to try to fix it or I'm going to hide it. That's what we still do today. So for you and I, when we experience and understand and become aware of some sin in our life, one tendency we have is to say, I'm just going to fix it. I'm going to make it better. So instead of running to Jesus for him to make it better, I just try to make it better myself. Well, how might we do that? One way is we just increase some of our morals. Well, I used to have one drink, now I'm not going to have any drinks. I used to watch TV for two hours, now I'm going to watch TV for one hour. Sometimes they become more active. So, like, this could be moralism. We have activism. I used to come to church twice a month, now I'm going to come to church every single week. And I like you coming to church every single week. That's a good thing. But sometimes we come and do things for the wrong reason. And that's why it's so hard to tell when someone's doing this. Because you could have five people sitting in a row, one person coming to church because they can't wait to worship Jesus, and then four people coming to church because they're trying to look better in front of Jesus. So here we sin, and we, there's the cross, and we say, oh, I don't want to have to have that conversation with Dad. I don't want to tell him that I did that. You know what? I'm just going to work harder so when he sees me, he's going to see how hard I'm working. Because of how hard I'm working, he's going to forgive me. That's what that is. We try to fix it. When we do that, we minimize his grace. We minimize his grace. We say, I see everything that you did on the cross for me, but it doesn't look like you did enough. So I'm going to work a little bit harder. You saved me 95% of the way. I'll do the last 5%. And then we try to contribute to our salvation. We try to look better in the eyes of Jesus. But what did we learn in Romans chapter 3? Your right standing before God came from the work of Jesus, not because of any work you did, are doing, or ever will do. Your right standing before God comes from Him and Him alone. You don't get to contribute. You don't get to contribute, but we want to. We're so much like Adam. Well, I'm just going to sew these fig leaves together. I'm just going to take care of this sin myself. So check your heart. Why are you doing the things you're doing? Why are you making the moral decisions you're making? Is your participation in things trying to make yourself more acceptable to God? Or is it because you simply love Him? If we don't try to fix it, sometimes we do this. We try to hide it. We try to hide it. And when we try to hide it, we're making, we're minimizing sin. We're saying, this sin is not a big deal. I can squish it up into a ball, stick it in my back pocket, and maybe he'll never notice. We minimize sin. So how do we do that? What does it look like when we're hiding? Well, one, it might look like we distract ourselves from our sin. 
we're feeling some guilt, we're feeling some shame. Like when you experience sin, you feel some guilt and you've got to do something. Nobody can handle just living with guilt. Someone, you always do something to try to get rid of your guilt. Either you run to Jesus or you try to fix your guilt or you hide it. And when you try to hide it, it doesn't actually go away. So you have to distract yourself from it. That might look like Netflix. That might look like hobbies and habits. Sometimes if the distractions don't work, you have to dull yourself. You have to dull yourself. How do you dull your senses? Well, there's plenty of options, and I don't encourage any of them, okay? Alcohol will dull your senses. Different drugs will dull your senses. Addictions will dull it. Refined sugar dulls it. Well, I'm feeling guilt. You know what makes me feel better? Chocolate, Oreo cookies, ice cream. So even if someone never touches alcohol, but they're downing the ice cream to try to get rid of the feelings of guilt, it's the same consequence. It's the same situation. It's the same outcome. The last one would be, sometimes we try to distance ourselves from the sin. Adam does this. He says, the woman made me do it. Like he says, I'm a victim. He blames outside of him. He tries to distance himself from the sin. So here are our three options. We run to Jesus, or we try to fix it, or we try to hide our sin. When we run to Jesus, we make much of Jesus. When we run away from Jesus, we make much of ourselves. I can just hide this. It's called self-justification. Or here we say, I can fix it. This is called self-righteousness. Both of those terms start with the word self. Only in the middle is it all about Jesus. So we need to live here. So God can use your sin to grow you to love him more. God can even use your sin, the worst thing about you, to grow you more. There's a small possibility that we're going to run a little bit past 9 o'clock. Let's see if we can do this next session in 10 minutes. All right, session four. Let's flip that page. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to flip all the way to there. So we're going to look at God's response to prayer. The answer to when do we pray, the answer is always. So I'm just going to assume we've covered that as always. What's God's response to prayer? Sometimes he does above and beyond what we can ask and imagine. Other times, like in 2 Corinthians, he does something else. The section is pretty long, so I'm just going to describe it to you. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 has a thorn in his flesh. We're not totally sure what that is but something is really bothering him, and he wants it to go away. And he asks the Lord, will you please take this thorn away? And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. God's response is maybe not what we would expect. Paul seems to know Jesus pretty well. He wrote the book of Romans. He wrote lots of books. He seems to know God's will pretty well, but in his request, take this from me, God's response is, my grace is sufficient for you. You can walk through this, child. I'll walk with you through this. So sometimes God's answer is different than what you would expect. Sometimes his response is, you can trust me. I'm sorry this hurts, but you can trust me. Jesus' example. We're just going to look at Luke and Mark. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus goes out to a mountainside and he prays. It says he spends the night praying to God. 
Now, this is at the early onset of his ministry. Like, he needs to be making a name for himself. He needs to be getting himself out into the public. People need to know who this Jesus is. But Jesus spends the entire night out on a mountainside, praying by himself in solitude with the Father. The next morning, he wakes up, and he selects his 12. So what we see there is Jesus makes big decisions. He spends great, a great deal of time with his Father in prayer to make those decisions. In Mark chapter 1, it says, in verse 35, that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, Jesus left the house, and he went off to a solitary place to pray. Now, in Mark here, there are already people waiting for him. Like, people are like hanging out, sleeping outside of the house. Like, there are people waiting to be healed. There are people waiting to be fed. There are people waiting to see Jesus. And Jesus just gets up and he goes out. Sometimes you and I, in our prayer life, and we're going into the details here, you just need to get up and you need to get out. You need to find times to get away with the Lord. When I was in college, I haven't done it as much in the last couple of years, but I would just do date nights with Jesus. Like my buddies and everybody would go out and do something, I would grab my Bible and I'd go to Subway. I'd get three cookies for a dollar because that's all it cost back then. And I was a college student, that's all I had. And I'd spend another 79 cents on a drink and I'd fill myself up with sugar all night long. <laughs> but I could afford it for two bucks, and I would just have a date night with Jesus, and I would work through his word. That's when I read, I mean, when I was 18, 19, 20, that's when I read all my systematic theology books, because they taught me about Jesus, and when I read them, I loved him more. So I would do date nights with Jesus, with his word, and with prayer, and that radically changed who I was and who I am. So do that. Find a way to date Jesus. Let's flip over to Paul's example in D. So everything that we just flipped over, that's your homework. Those are actually pretty easy Bible studies to do in a group. So the sections that we're jumping over, do those in your group. You can lead those. You're ready. You're prepared. Paul's example. In general, in his letters, Paul is praying all the time. He describes himself as praying for the churches and for his co-laborers night and day constantly. And he teaches about prayer over and over again through his letters. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, it says that he lifts up his brother night and day. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, he connects prayer to the rapid spread of the gospel. He says that the gospel is going forth because you're praying for it. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, Paul connects prayer to his ability to clearly and to boldly teach God's word to those who don't know him. So he connects evangelism and prayer together. He connects his ministry and prayer together. So evangelism and spiritual growth comes from, in part, people praying for it. That's how Paul thinks. That's how his ministry works. So Paul puts prayer in the center of his ministry, both for evangelism and for spiritual growth. Down in E, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, there is no verse 39 that was a typo. But verse 38, you see Jesus looking out into the fields, and he is saddened by the fact that there are people who are helpless. They are like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. So when Jesus sees the situation that people are in, his response is, you need to pray. And his prayer isn't just Pray that some people would come to know me as Lord and Savior. Notice that. His prayer 
is for laborers. Pray that people come to know me as Lord and Savior and buy into the idea of working the fields. God of the harvest, raise up people who are going to go for it with evangelism and spiritual growth and discipleship. That's the request that Jesus calls us to make in our prayers. So you see Paul and Jesus in one accord. When we pray, one of the centerpieces of our prayer is that the word of God would go out to those who don't know him. And those who do know him, that the word of God would transform them and change them to grow in Christ. So that's how he links them together. So for us at Bible Center, we say out loud all the time, we are for the gospel and we are for the city. Why do we say for the gospel? Because everyone who doesn't know Jesus, that's the most important thing that they need to hear is the gospel. For those who do know Jesus, it's the most important thing that you need to hear all the time to grow spiritually. This is the gospel for the believer. You continue to have sin. You continue to run to Jesus to grow in him. Your whole life is spent at the foot of the cross, being changed and transformed to know him more. As you see your sin, he, and he helps you work through your sin as you repent and you believe, and he grows you and he changes you as you become overly overwhelmed with his love, his mercy, and his grace as he pours it out on you. The gospel's for the believer, not just for the person who needs to believe. So when we say we're for the gospel and we're for the city, this can only happen if it's built on a foundation of prayer. This can only happen if it's built on the foundation of prayer. Let's go to G. So you're going to have to flip a couple pages. The need to persevere. I'm going to kind of summarize these verses together. So we see a persistent widow in this passage who just keeps knocking on the door and asking for justice. And eventually, <clears throat> the person gives in, the judge gives in because the widow won't stop bothering him. So when we're praying God's heart and God's will, we keep praying over and over again. We're called to do that. We're called to be persistent. We're called to persevere. In Luke 11, 5 through 9, it says that the persistent neighbor is going to get what he's asking for if he keeps asking. So there's this call to persevere in prayer. But the other side of that coin is Psalm 40, verse 1. There it says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. So on one side, we're called to be persistent. On the other side, we wait for his answer. Both are true in the Christian life. They feel like they're antitheses to one another, but they're both true. So I'm going to show you a two-minute video by David Platt, which I think is really good. The question is, why do we pray? Is prayer necessary? David Platt, he answers that, and he pushes us. And then we're going to send about three or four minutes and close up. So, Stephen, if you would run that video. I think it's interesting that in the church today, so many of us ask, why is prayer necessary? And we don't ask it, but we really don't show with our lives that prayer is necessary. And so we show with our lives that we're asking, why is prayer necessary? You know why I think we ask that question? Because you don't need prayer when you're watching TV. And we don't need prayer when we're mindlessly surfing the internet. You don't need prayer then. You don't need prayer when there's nothing at stake in your walk with Christ. You don't need prayer when there's no risk in Christianity. 
You don't need prayer when Christianity consists of a monotonous religious motion of routine week in and week out. You don't need prayer for that. You can do that on your own. But when you risk everything to glorify Jesus Christ, you need prayer. When you sacrifice your possessions and your dreams and your hopes and your career and you lay it all on the line and you stake your reputation down on your allegiance to Christ, you need prayer. When your longing day in and day out is to lead people to faith in Christ, you need prayer. You rely on prayer. You are desperate for prayer because you're devoted to his mission. And when the aim of your life is to affect as many people with the gospel of Christ for the glory of Christ, you will find yourselves given over to prayer. As I've been putting this together, what I've been praying for you is this, is that God would transform our prayers to be gospel-centered prayers. What does that mean? Signs of gospel renewal in our prayer life looks like this. Our prayers go from prayers to control our circumstances to prayers where we request faith. We ask for contentment and we pray for peace. Our prayers go from being focused on our requests to extended times of praise. Our prayers go from being filled with explanations and excuses to being filled with confession and repentance. Our prayer goes from requesting our circumstances to change to requesting that God would change us. Our prayers go from being about my world and my little kingdom to being about his world and his great kingdom. Our prayers go from being concerned about our goals, our little goals, to being concerned about his mission, his goals. Our prayers go from me being focused on my next step to his next step in me. I go from praying alone to calling others to pray with me. Those are all signs of the gospel renewing and changing our prayer life. So a Bible center. What are our next steps at Bible center? I think God's doing some amazing things here at Bible center. Here's something I think we still have yet to work on. It's our prayer life and our prayer as a church. Now, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to say, let's all start meeting here on Wednesday nights and praying. That's usually not how God moves when it comes to prayer movements. God moves this way. We talk about prayer. His word goes forth, his word, and he begins to spark a couple hearts. And when those hearts are sparked, those people start praying. And they start calling other people to pray in homes, in corners of the churches, in parks, in schools, in neighborhoods. People just start praying. So I don't want to like have prayer be like a fireplace where we control it and it has to be a certain temperature, it's done a certain way. I want, to be like, I want it to be like a wildfire that takes over Charleston. I want it to be coming from you. Where are you at tonight? Are you ready to be one of those sparks? Are you ready to be in a group and to call your group to pray? Not the little prayers, the big prayers. Are you going to be for the gospel and for the city? And that's not a Bible center thing. We believe that's a Jesus thing. He's called us to center our life around the gospel, and he's put us in this particular city at this particular point in time. Who else is going to pray for it if we don't? Paul and Jesus both connected for us. Evangelism and spiritual growth comes from prayer. If we want to see evangelism go forward and people come to know him, if we want to see boldness and clarity, unlike we've ever seen it before, if we want to see God raising up laborers, 
not just people who say yes to Jesus, but they say yes to Jesus and his mission and to a lifetime of service. Jesus says you pray for people like that. Pray that God raises them up and grows them. I want to be a church that commits to praying for those types of people. I want to be a church where we are those types of people. So my call to you is that you would start being a spark to start this wildfire of prayer. We're never going to reach the city if we're not praying for it. We're never going to see spiritual growth at the level that we could if we don't start praying for it. So the next step is I want you to start a fire. I want you to get it going. I want your life to be transformed. I want you to lose sleep at night until your group's lives are transformed. May God move us forward. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is your church, and these are your people. Uh, you love them more than I do, than any other pastor does here, and you long to see them grow in you. You have a smiling face, and when they enter into your presence, you experience joy as they get to experience your joy. May we run quickly into your presence. In suffering, may we run to you. In our sin, may we run to you. May we live lives of running to you and enjoying life at the foot of the cross. Grow us, radically change us. May we be the laborers that we're praying for. God, may we be for your gospel. May we be the centerpiece of our message. May we be for your gospel. May we be the centerpiece of our lives and our groups and our conversations and our relationships and our prayers. Lord, allow us to be for the city, that we would no longer be content in our home, in our neighborhood, and in our circles of comfort. May we want to see more. May we want to see this world come to know you. May this city be a place where we begin to share your gospel more and more. May we pray for boldness and clarity and a willingness to open our mouths and share the good news that you've given to us. Lord, allow us to be for your gospel, for the city. Ignite a wildfire of prayer here in this church and across the city. We ask nothing less because you can do it. So according to your will and truly in your name, we ask for these things. Amen. Thank you for coming. I appreciate each and every one of you.